Hello and a warm Collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Miss Jen Lofgren. How are you doing, Jen? Oh, I'm great, Tyler. How are you? I am so good. We're going to talk about leadership today. It's a topic that is so broad and so and, and so all-inclusive. I'm excited to unpack it a little bit, understand the role, the world that you interact around the concept and around the, just the title leadership. You are, and I'm creeping on your LinkedIn, managing partner and executive leadership coach, facilitator, speaker, but more importantly, you are at Insito, executive and leadership development. So what's an Insito? Let's start with that. Let's do the quick elevator pitch and we'll go from there. Well, Insito means insight, excite, and inspire. And that's exactly what we do, whether it's with individual leaders, executive teams, um, and we do it in three different ways. We help them move from being reactive to strategic leaders through individual development, from being siloed to unified teams to help them be a better collective and cohesive executive team acting as one leader for the organization. And we move them from being ambiguous to clear on their strategy and direction. So again, they can be aligned as, an, as a collective leadership team to move the organization forward to a better and new future. Mm. And we've been doing that since uh, 2009. I don't know where time goes. It goes so quickly. It does. Time flies when you're having fun or when you're changing the world. Um, what kind of, what size of company? Is there a sweet, is there a sweet spot? Because obviously leadership teams come in all shapes and sizes. Where's, where, where do you love to work or where do you typically find yourself playing it? Uh, typically, we find ourselves working with organizations that are somewhere between uh, 500 and 5,000 employees. Uh, it's not about revenue because we work with so many different sectors, energy, media, construction, finance, technology, that revenue varies so widely for the size of organizations. Uh, depending on the different sector, it's really about the uh, number of employees. It's how we think about the, uh, the scaling of leadership. And the shifts in culture that we see as organizations reach 500 employees is a different approach to leadership and culture of the executive team than an organization that reaches 1,000 employees, 2,500 employees, 5,000 employees. We could do a podcast just on the layers, like just on that, kind of how you break that apart. Uh, speaking more broadly, what are you running into? What do you see? You've been doing this since 2009. So you've been doing this for, for a while and looking at your LinkedIn profile, you've been facilitating and involved in this for quite a period of time. What are you seeing? And I don't want to use the word trend, but what are some of the more popular topics or the areas of focus? Have they evolved? What are you seeing and have they changed? Or is it, is it been a kind of a universal, maybe human journey from 2009 till now in terms of what you're seeing kind of coming up as, I'm going to go with issues because issues create opportunities, but let's start with the issues that you're seeing. Uh, well, I think the issues really haven't changed, at least when it comes to individual leaders. The journey of leadership is really moving from being a frontline contributor who's an expert at uh, attending to and resolving the problems of today for immediate results. And the shift into becoming a leader is shifting to creating results for the future and letting go of being the expert. And stepping into the vulnerability of creating for the future and taking on a strategic and systems approach to resolve those long-term issues or to create uh, a new vision that's never existed before. And the sacrifice of some results for today in service of that new future and working on this shift from reactive to strategic mindset where reactive is not bad. It's just about being that great frontline contributor and making that shift in your perspective and how you're using your skills and strengths. But the one thing I've seen changing over the last 15 years is a shift from looking at individual executives development to looking at executive team development 
and seeing some trends emerging in our work in that space, which has been an evolving space and looking at leadership development of the culture and the ability to reach the strategy for the organization is limited by the development, collective development of the executive team. And we see some common trends of some of the things that are getting in the way for those executive teams. And we call them the, uh, the five distractions. And those okay. leadership teams. I, 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 I love I, I love a good top three, top five, top ten list. So I love it. <laughs> the five distractions of a team. <laughs> yeah, and not just five distractions of a team. The five distractions we see in leadership teams. Yeah, specifically, yes. Mm. So I had I got past, I had Patrick I had Patrick Lencioni in my head there for a second. <laughs> yeah, and we use Patrick Lencioni's model as one of the tools to help us with that, along with a number of other models. But there's there's five things that we find start bringing um, teams to us to help them go from being siloed to unified and help them get to greater clarity and creating uh, a new future. And they're teams that are getting caught in drama, okay. whether it's drama from within the team, it could be drama with some of their stakeholders, could be their employees, external stakeholders, their board. <clears throat> The next how, do you, how, would, how would you how would you define drama in this case? Because I, 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 most of us are prickling right now because we can envision us being either in this situation <laughs> or like ah, I hate I I know I have so many friends I hate drama. My, my my friend's dad said to me goes well Chris you know for a guy who doesn't seem to like drama you seem to create a lot of it in your life <laughs> and he told me the day his dad dropped that on him I was like well your dad knows you pretty well my friend so talk to, how would you even define drama in this context? <laughs> Uh, so I like the, uh, the model from Stephen Cartman. He's a psychologist that in the 1970s developed the drama triangle model of understanding drama and their pattern responses are ways that we react to triggers that come our way. And he talks about a persecutor or villain, a victim and a hero or rescuer. And we need all three in the drama triangle for drama to exist. And so the persecutor can be a person, a system, a thing. We all know COVID was a persecutor, a villain for many of us. Yeah. It was this thing that was happening to us and we felt powerless and hopeless and like we had no choice amongst it. And sometimes uh, or often drama is another person. Could be a team member that I'm struggling with. We're not aligned on something. I feel like they're undermining me and I come up with story around. There's nothing I can do to influence this other person. And then we need a rescuer. And a rescuer can be, again, another person. It could also be ourselves. It could be some pattern behaviors that we have to resolve the issue short term of the drama. But long term, it actually keeps us in it. And classically, we see within a team that Tyler, we're having conflict. You're my persecutor. You're not getting me the things that I need to be able to advance our collective goal as a organization. And I go talk to our CEO and I'm like, oh, CEO, Tyler's a problem. Talk to Tyler. He's not getting the reports over to me. His team is a roadblock. Can you deal with Tyler? And so I just enrolled the CEO to be my rescuer. And so the CEO goes and deals with you for me and we end up having a relationship through the CEO. But the CEO comes and talks to you about all of my grievances and challenges. And you're like, what? Why didn't Jen come and talk to me? Now, suddenly you feel like a victim and I've been your persecutor. And round and round, the drama gets bigger unless we find ways to step out of it. And we use a tool called the Empowerment Dynamic 
to look at shifting your thinking of what's my part? What do I want to create? And uh, how do I not just get rid of the problem, but get to a better relationship between Tyler and Jen, instead of just dealing with um, my grievance of Tyler, you're not getting me the reports. You might have a very good reason why you can't get me the reports and how we're working together that if we really step back and have a vulnerable conversation, we can get to a better working relationship and create the culture that we aspire to have for our teams and across the organization so we become more unified in how we work together. Love it. I, for, I forgot about the drama triangle. That's a good reminder. Thank you. Well, well explained as well, by the way. Oh, <laughs> um, thank you. Okay, so caught in drama, which very clearly explained. What about, what's number two? I love, I love number two things. is tyranny of the urgent. Ooh, oh, I love it. Such good, such good names for these two. <laughs> tyranny of the urgent. I think we all know what that means, but please break it down for us a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, firefighting. It's the pile of stuff that comes our way uh, that if we look at the Eisenhower matrix um, and looking at it's urgent and important, but there's a never ending flow of problems that come our way. They can distract us from working on the vision and the strategy because there's just this never ending demand for your time and problems coming your way. And how do you make some conscious decisions in which ones you address, which ones you delegate which ones you say no to, even though they're vulnerable and it's like being a fire department and having a fire burning and choosing your response time. You might be able to put all your resources towards putting out fires better and faster as a fire department, but ultimately that will keep you from getting to your ultimate goal, which is never having lives and property at risk, a future with no fires. And so tyranny of the urgent is, I use the metaphor of fire department, is responding to fires better and faster, better and faster, but keeps me from creating the world that I want, which is a world with no fires. So tyranny of the urgent. Solving the problems, but not stopping the problems from happening. Either. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, love I love it. These are so well-named too. Okay. All right. Now, number, now, number three, and I feel we could just circle back and I feel like we're going to end up talking about these five for the whole time because I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 they're, they're connect, they're resonating with me. Let's just say that and I'll leave it there. Maybe my audience is experiencing the same thing as they hear this. <laughs> uh, number three, distraction number three is a focus on individual results. And at first that sounds noble and worthy that of course we want executives to focus on results, but it's focusing on their own personal goals or their team goals and looking downward in the organization of what do they need to achieve for their teams. Maybe you've got an engineering team that is desperately looking to implement a new process to streamline a piece of their work. And I lose sight as the executive of, is that aligned with where we're going with our strategy of the organization? And how does that get me into conflict with my executive team peers around budget, around ability to advance our strategic priorities? But my team below, they're demanding they need, and yes, it's noble and worthy, and is it aligned with our strategic goals? Mm -hmm. And so distraction number three is a really tricky one because you've got multiple stakeholders. You've got your team below. You've got your peers, you've got your clients, and we can get the blinders on and focus on our individual personal results or our team's results at the expense of the results of my peers across the organization that can actually get in the way of us creating collective results 
and advancing the organizational strategy because I get the blinders on and so singularly focused on my individual business unit. And it creates conflict across the executive team and takes us back to siloed, keeps us in ambiguity. And it's, again, alluring because we do want everyone focused on results, but not one business unit's results at the expense of others. Which can really be a victim of so many things, but like compensation structures, reward matrix, how, what you're getting comped on, what's, you know, what gets focused on. I always joke, you know, if you don't want to shoot the window out, you should stop hanging the target in front of it. Oh, I didn't realize the window was behind the target. And I've seen that happen so many times, even, you know, us being a small organization, but we work with large clients and all of a sudden you start getting crossover and you're like, oh, wow, this is like, this is adversarial just by its DNA of what you're asking us to do for you versus you. And what, but that's what we're, we're comped on that, or we're rewarded on this behavior or, and they're rewarded on something else. And it's, it's interesting as a vendor, sometimes when you run into that from the outside, because it's so obvious for you looking over the wall sometimes. <laughs> I think the other thing about the, uh, the focus on individual results, um, the, I think you were alluding to is then it can impede or, uh, influence decision-making. And it gets in the way of alignment of decision-making and can delay decisions of the executive team because it then circles back to getting caught in drama. Uh, (laughs) Yes, it's always a circle. Okay, so we've got caught in drama, tyranny of the urgent, focus on individual results, which I like what you said, sounds very altruistic and noble at first blush, but maybe not. What's number four? (laughs) Number four is being too big and too inclusive as an executive team. And again, sounds noble and worthy. Executive teams want to be inclusive. They want to engage in consultation. But what happens is we've seen teams, executive teams, as large as 15, (coughs) wanting to give everyone a voice at the table. But what we find is when you get beyond somewhere around eight leaders in executive team, it actually starts becoming less inclusive and people start having less voice. Imagine you have a one hour executive team meeting with 15 executives in the team. You've got a little intro to your topic at hand. You have a small presentation and then you give everyone two minutes for discussion. Trying to get to some next steps and wrap up. And finish that meeting on time so that people can have a bio break and get on to their next meeting. There is no room for dialogue. There is no room for debate. Debate. It's it becomes uh, a competition. We find where uh, people have meetings after the meetings so that they can have a voice, so that they can ask more questions, so they can dig in and understand, or they have the debate after the meeting. And we see something that interesting that happens in the boardrooms is. Either the loudest voices prevail or those that are struggling to have a voice, they just become louder to be able to rise above and dominate the conversation because there's no other way to get in. And so Mm. the idea of inclusivity is key and important, but also ensuring that you have a limited number of people in the room so that you can have inclusion, you can hear different perspectives. And we also find with a large team of 15 they tend to be a group of people that report to the same leader, but they aren't actually a team that's really working hand in hand together on collective goals. And we find that in those large teams of 15, that they start splintering into smaller clicky groups that are advancing smaller projects together. There's a lack of cohesion across the entire executive team. And 
more conflict ensues. They end up more focused on the tyranny of the urgent. They're focusing on their individual results. But again, um, alluring because we want inclusion. And we've worked with a number of executive teams that we've come in and seen this group of 12 or 15 and seen by just reducing the number of executives in the executive team meetings, how their team dynamics have dramatically shifted and they've been more inclusive and developed trust and rapport amongst the direct reports to those executive leaders and how they're working together and bringing that information and representing it and giving it more of a voice in executive meetings, not less, and then bringing information and reporting back to their teams. That creates a more healthy dynamic in the organization. I love just the simple redefining, like inclusive, although noble, let's define it. And putting more people in the room doesn't necessarily meet that objective. Well, listening to you talk, it actually has the opposite impact. We've included more people, but in a way we've alienated and ostracized through clicks and people not feeling connected and like who's the loudest at the dinner table gets, gets fed more kind of, kind of mindset with a positive, but it's, you know, what I love about it, it was because there was a positive intention doesn't mean there's equally going to be a positive outcome if you use the wrong model. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, Mm -hmm. the ultimate goal is to be able to hear from uh, a perspective of all stakeholders inside and outside the organization. And that's where, and diversity of perspectives and debate at the table and having well-debated, um, exciting meetings. Talk about that from Lencioni. It's like we, the goal is to get to meetings where people don't want to miss them because things happen in the meeting. Yeah. Things don't happen in meetings with 15 people. Um, and we just don't get the diverse perspectives that pushes the thinking. It becomes status update and round robin meetings where people have their two minutes to have the microphone and not an increase in understanding and the collective wisdom of the executive team. So distraction number four, too inclusive. Which perpetuates the whoever's loudest gets heard and, you know, the oversimplified, but often easily to understand the extrovert versus introvert. Those loud individuals, those meetings tend to get the airtime because they, they demand it, create it you're missing some of the thoughts that could be coming from someone else just because they didn't have the, the, the opportunity to even engage or speak. <laughs> Again, that's an easy bucket to throw introvert extra, but the loud ones get heard and the, and the quiet ones don't <laughs> in a situation like that. So number five, I'm on the edge of my seat over here, Jen. <laughs> so number four is often a perpetuator of number five, but it doesn't have to be. It can come in a number of different ways. Number five is side doors and back doors. What's that mean to you? Side Tyler? doors, side doors into back doors, side doors and back doors. Oh, I thought you said into back and back door. What does that mean to me? That means politicking. That means and running around someone to get the results you want. It means an environment where, like, I can go to my leader, but they're not going to get action. But you know, the the senior, the, their leader's leader will give me the time of day. So I'm gonna I'm gonna work around that, and it becomes very um, creates an untrustworthy environment. It creates a very uh, indiscreet way of getting things done that leaves people feeling jaded and betrayed and it probably gets super toxic. That's what that means to me. I don't know if I'm in the ballpark. Yeah, you you totally got it. And we've got two different names for them because the first one is side doors. With a lack of understanding around processes, some healthy norms across the team. And if I don't know how to get something done, it comes from a well-intentioned place. 
Mm. I might not go to my leadership peer to go and address them to get something done. I go directly to one of their team members from an innocent place of just trying to advance something. And I don't really know what the process is. And so I go and approach one of your direct reports, Tyler, and I ask them to do something, but I don't include you. And it's not from a nefarious place. I'm just genuinely trying to get something done. And I take this side door approach from a well-intentioned, but um, distracting place because it creates more drama with us because we keep cycling around around communication. There's confusion that shows up. Your team members get confused because I've asked them to do something on a different timeline than some of the other expectations you have of them. They're not sure if they address you around it, if they come back to me, or maybe it's the CEO that goes and asks them directly. And by virtue of those three letters, CEO, can't say no, but I'm also not sure if I should tell my boss. And it's unintended as a side door. A back door is intended. Mm. I know, Tyler, if I come talk to you, you don't fully support uh, the request that I have. uh, And I'm going to intentionally go around you to get what I want done. And so that's a backdoor. The backdoor is the, the undermining, the intentional. And I'm not a bad person, but I'm trying to advance something and I'm avoiding the uncomfortable discussions or working on our relationship long term to create alignment for us. And so I'm really focused on getting to my short term results. And this takes us then back to the drama triangle. I see you as a barrier and a persecutor. And I'm looking for any way to go around you to get my needs met, to rescue myself, I end up using the back door as my rescuer. When you, when you encounter an organization, a new client or a new potential, is, is this the majority of the time a strong underpinning of what, of what you find? Because and, and, what I'm hearing is not even a circle, but almost like an infinity loop. If you do one, it leads back to the other and it just keeps yeah. looping around on itself. Um, I'm assuming bits and pieces because if you have one, you kind of have the, uh, you, you probably have some of the others is what I'm also hearing in the way you describe this. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it took us a while to categorize them down to these five because they overlap so much. Yet there's, uh, there's distinct distractions and they're all well-intentioned in the beginning. And that's what leads them to being distracted distractions is as an executive team, you can't see them. They're just, you're so close to them and everyone's just doing their best to try and do a great job for the organization and for your employees and even for your own career that it's hard to see through this uh, fog of the distractions to what's really going on. Uh, And ultimately what happens is with this these distractions, you can get dysfunction amongst the executive team, but you can also run into issues around uh, leadership pipeline and succession in the organization as a result of looking to bring others along and exposure of your team members to other members of the executive team. We can see uh, we had one organization where um, one leader had a strategic priority to advance for the organization and needed to stand up a new business unit. And the best leader to run that new business unit was from another executive's team. Executive number two blocked that executive from hiring and putting in the best leader in the organization for succession into that role because they really liked that person and the value they brought to their own team, Mm -hmm. which gets in the way of the organization and succession for individuals and ultimately advancing the strategic priorities of their, their, their strategic plan. We, we are still messy humans having a journey, right? Let's not forget that. <laughs> and I say that with and all really the does, due respect, all yeah. the due respect. 
it really does come back to that. And so, you know, since 2009, we've been working on helping leaders on their journey of a better me and moving from reactive to strategic. But what happens is we'll come in and we'll work with an executive team of nine and we'll work with them all on individual coaching and pair them with uh, a best fit coach for each one of them. And they're advancing in how they're growing and developing on their own mindset of leadership and their own skills and capacities as an individual executive. But there's something about who are we as one cohesive leader of the organization, even though we bring our, our own individual styles. And that's where it's important to not work on just a better me, but a better us, so that we are one consistent leader of the organization and unified no matter what we debate and discuss amongst ourselves, that once we face any of our stakeholders, our employees, our board, our external stakeholders, that there's one unified voice and one unified approach, multiple styles of individual leaders, but we've elevated our development as a collective, not just our development as individuals. An example I'll give is time management. That's an issue that comes up for a lot of leaders because of the increasing scope of responsibility and their own personal journey in moving away from being that expert that gets into the weeds and takes things on themselves. And they can work on delegation. They can work on blocking strategic time. They can work on being on time for their meetings and how they're structuring their day and all the choices they're making. But if there's a dynamic or a norm in the executive team of meetings running over time or of Um, booking on top of uh, other meetings that you might have with your own individual direct reports. And we don't have healthy dynamics or norms of um, how we collectively use time. You can keep feeling powerless and struggle with how you're making choices around time because you don't really have autonomy and alignment with your executive peers around some processes around the collective use of executive time. Which when you say that, <clears throat> that's not, that's not, I'm going to joke. <clears throat> that's not rocket science, what you just said, but so powerful in creating boundaries and creating being like defining the rules of engagement is what I'm hearing. And you talk about, Oh, that sounds so obvious. Like don't run over, be respectful of time. Don't overbook someone's schedule. But those little things happen all the time. Is, is this also a series of with your, with your work dealing with some of those, and I don't know, again, low hanging fruit. I'm using all the corporate buzzwords. I apologize. The low hanging fruit of like, let's get some of this, these parameters set and all agree upon it and then follow that. So it sets us up to move to kind of a higher level of self-actualization. Is that how it, or does it happen to me in a meandering format? We'll work on this, which leads to that, which then connects to this. It's a little bit of both and it sounds really simple, but if these things were simple, we would all do them. Like say the little things. (laughs) Jen, you and I would not be having this conversation, right? If these were simple. (laughs) Right. And these little things are the big things. And they tend to be things that we overlook and tell ourselves the lie that it can't be that easy. If we were to just do X, things would be magically better. The challenge is they're simple in concept and they require vulnerable conversations for us to create some agreements. And so the structure of, yeah, let's sit down and create some agreements on how we work together. But what I want and what you want are different. And how do we find some mutual purpose and come together on some compromise where everybody gets a little of what they want and everybody gives up a little bit of what they want so that collectively we can come to some agreements and hold each other to those agreements requires those vulnerable conversations as a starting point. And 
those are incredibly hard. They are. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, so I've seen a lot of individuals that I know that have moved up into leadership roles from individual contributor roles. In those individual contributor roles, they were typically so rewarded, praised, validated, accredited, <laughs> showcased <laughs> um, around their ability to be awesome and their ability to do the thing better than anyone else can do mm -hmm, the thing in a way mm -hmm. that moved it forward. Then they move into a leadership role and no one ever said, oh, hey, by the way, you need to now be rewarded or you're going to be looked at now on your ability to, like, as you said, not only do the thing that's going to change the future, but do it through a whole bunch of other people. I've seen such a tough through some of my friends that were technical professionals, very advanced in their careers that moved into leadership roles and they struggled because their whole DNA was around not being vulnerable, being impeccable, being the knower of all things, the walking into the room with all the answers, which from an, a leadership perspective can really alienate the people that are now supposed to be following you <laughs> back to leading and following and all that. And we also live in a town, and I'm going to speak on Calgary a little bit, that's, that's often joked that's led by engineers and accountants, which are highly technically professional, pr proficient individuals. Does that create even a more difficult paradigm? Or is that exactly what we're just talking about here, just putting some words to it? Uh, it's exactly what you're talking about. Uh, we're, we see three patterns show up that get in the way of that development and shifting from that um, frontline contributor. And we're using the frontline contributor metaphor, but it's really is a continual journey as you're advancing into more and more senior leadership and shifting from being the reactive expert to the strategic and creative leader. I need to let go of what you were describing as I'm rewarded for winning or I'm rewarded for being right and the most knowledgeable. Or in other cases, I'm rewarded for being liked and creating peace and harmony and sense of belonging and pleasing others. And it's how I got here. It's how I use my strengths to create success to this point that got me all that recognition, including getting promoted into this more senior leadership role. The catch is what got kind of this Jim Collins, what yeah, got yeah, me what here, got what you. get me there. <laughs> I could see you. I could see that one coming. You couldn't help but say it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is from a mindset shift of how I've used my strengths to get me here operating in the known where there's right answers, there's right decisions, the more senior leadership you move into, now you're making decisions that have never been made before. Mm -hmm. You're setting a new course for the future. You're creating a strategy of who knows if it's right because nobody's taken this organization in that direction before into the future that we have five years from now. I can't know if it's really the right decisions. So there's operating in that ambiguity and letting go of being the most right person in the room, the person who's supposed to have all the knowledge and all the answers and be the expert in everything. And you can't, especially in, when you get into the executive team, I use the example of CEO with a lot of functional uh, executive leadership roles. Uh, the CEO can't be the expert in finance and marketing and every area of operations. You just can't know it all. So as CFO, you can't be on top of everything and know everything. You need to be aware of the bigger picture and how things are evolving and progressing, but not know all the minute details. You can't anymore. And it's not up to you to have the answers. It's up to you to have the questions, to really vet the critical thinking of the person in front of you to ensure that they've done critical thinking, they've done the right engagement, they've done their work to present to you the best possible options in a way that helps you make that final decision. But you can't ever know if it's totally the right decision because you haven't done the work yourself. 
And that's the vulnerability that goes with it. And it's using your strengths in letting go of being right, letting go of winning at all costs or letting go of being liked. That's challenge for leaders in that stage of development and not becoming someone else, staying who you are and hanging on to all those strengths, using your strengths now in ambiguity instead of uncertainty. Which is, it gets real scary, real, really, really quick. I want to share something that I was exposed to quite a few years ago. I'm in, I'm in tech, so an executive group, and they bring in speakers. There was a gentleman from mm-hmm. Florida, I believe. His name was Tom Foster. And he brought a theory forward. I think the, the, it was from the gentleman, I think his name is Elliot Jacks. He was an industrial researcher, and he came up with this whole concept around time span. And the ability for an individual to be successful in a role is correlated to their ability to think into the future in, in correlation to the tasks that they have in front of you. And I just can't, it keeps coming up for me in my mind as I'm hearing you talk about the ambiguity of like what's going to happen five years from now and how to be able to live in that is a skill that sometimes is, uh, I think he explained it, like there's an innate level. You can, you can learn it. You can go, he kind of did a level one, which was kind of zero to 30 days. And then he did level two, which is more project managers. But then level three, you're getting into system special. Like how do I build a system that's going to work over a longer period? But his whole universal truth was this ability to sit in the time span of where your brain allows you to, to think versus the length of time you need to think out into the future too. And it was a cool concept. And I just, it always stuck with me where it was, you felt like you were learning a little bit of a, oh, hmm, of why certain individuals really thrive in those highly technical, but very quick turnaround type tasks versus someone who can go, if we do this now, three years from now, we'll end up here. And it's very difficult for one to move to the other level. Is that anything that resonates with you around that? Or is that, is that a left, like bringing that one out of left field? Uh, it, it, it totally does. Um, and you get me thinking about you're on those individual journeys and then we're taking a collective of eight to 15 executives and they're now trying to go on that journey together. So there's, all, there's all a personal with a different mindset piece. around the future, right? Yeah. totally. Mm-hmm. And we're all well-intentioned and want the best for the organization and our stakeholders. But how, what I think is the best direction and what you think is the best direction, we're all well-meaning and we think that we each have the best path forward and the stepping into that ambiguity and vulnerability as individuals and then trying to do it as a collaborative group. The complexity that that creates for an executive team is just exponential. Uh, so yeah, I think you're, you're right on the money there. And of course you can't overlook that things are happening faster. The, the future is even more unpredictable. We've got new technologies. We have new competitors in our sector. Is this just simply the same old problem, but accelerated and compressed? Because this has always been a challenge. It does feel like the pace of change, which ladders right back into all these things, does feel accelerated, especially, you know, again, the lame COVID since COVID and digital transformation and all the things that are impacting businesses now that was maybe something that took five years before and now it takes five months. I only can imagine this is just compressing the, the challenges, right? Didn't change the challenges, it just compressed them. You know, and when I hear about the world getting more uncertain, I don't think the world is getting more uncertain. I think we're just getting more aware of how uncertain it is. And I'll go back ah, to- Nice shift, nice shift, yeah. Like- we talked about COVID before and people say, oh, now the world is more uncertain and we're not, no, we're just more aware of- how realistic it is or what the, the experience of the probability of a pandemic occurring feels like. The chances of a pandemic isn't any greater now than it was prior to COVID. There's been pandemics in the past and we've forgotten what they're like because it's been so long. Yeah. 
and most but and we chances, didn't experience it because I wasn't there. <laughs> this is yeah. this is my first run through this, right? <laughs> yeah, and the volatility of the world isn't anymore. The world is just what the world is. We're now just a little bit more aware of what that volatility mm. feels like. But we have this illusion. We can tell ourselves a story of not us or put it aside. These little inklings of volatility and ambiguity that come up and we push them aside. And then when we're confronted with them in a crisis, we tell ourselves things are getting more uncertain. No, the world is what the world is. It is a chaotic place. And we do things to try and cope and help ourselves create stories about certainty to help us cope with the uncertainty in the world. But the world is what the world is. And it's full of chaos and full of unknown corners. And it's easy for us to focus on the problems we want to get rid of versus working on creating the future for the organization, that, for that ourselves, we for our stakeholders that we want to live in that takes us back to the tyranny of the urgent. We can get caught up in the drama of the world being uncertain that distracts us and keeps us from sitting down and imagining the future we want to create even if we can't be certain about what it is. I like to say there's no wrong decisions, there's next decisions. And what I mean by that is it's important to pick a destination, even if we don't know it's the right one. And as you start taking baby steps as an executive team or as an individual leader towards that new vision, you'll learn some things. And incorporating and iterating that learning and coming back and asking questions of, do we need to pivot? What do we need to refine? What are we getting clear about maybe what did we learn what did we learn yesterday pivot a little bit what are we learning so we're iterating the decisions daily and weekly rather than creating a strategy and then not revisiting it and just executing on it for the next three to five years that would be a mistake by an executive team but it's important to not perfect it it's important to make some decisions and set a course and a direction because people need to know what they're working towards And it can keep evolving over time. And we can tell ourselves a lie. Well, we can't evolve it and change it over time because it'll confuse people. But what happens is then we find executive teams don't set themselves a North Star. They don't set themselves a strategy and get clarity around it. And then we get back to the distractions where people focus on their individual results. We start getting side doors and back doors. People start getting caught in drama because the leader or the leadership team is afraid to make decisions on clarity for the future because they don't know if it's right. They don't know if they can win. They don't know if they've got it right and they might let people down. Which really comes back to being vulnerable to think to before yeah. you brought that word in. Because hey, this is the best this is the decision we're making based on the information we have at the time. And I reserve the right to change based on new information. Oh but come on, I thought you're supposed to have all the answers. <laughs> the biggest illusion of leadership. <laughs> We definitely have a little freeze thing going on in our technology. We have gremlins in the machine today, Jim. That's okay. Yeah, I don't know Te- what's going on. But little, little we're freeze. in it together. Uh, yeah, we are. We are. You know what? And uh, technology, I've, I've, I've read, I read an article recently that, you know, if all the devs went to lunch at the same time, we'd have about 15 minutes till the whole thing fell apart. So that it's all, it's all built on Baylor Twine and duct tape. I'm like, well, that's kind of discouraging, but, you know, I'm still pretty impressed with technology and what it allows me to accomplish. Like have a conversation with you from across town, like we're in the same room. It's pretty amazing unto itself. <laughs> Last thing I'm going to throw out. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, as we've been talking, um, it takes me back to your passion for Alberta and the Alberta economy. And one of the reasons why we exist and do the work we do is we believe that we need stronger leaders in Canada. Hmm. 
and we need stronger leaders in Alberta. The world is, and the economy is not more uncertain. We're just more aware of it. And if there's anything that we need in Alberta at this time, we need stronger leaders, not only in our government, but we actually need stronger leaders in our businesses and our organizations. We need stronger leaders in those businesses and organizations to steward our economy forward. So there's the collective leadership within organizations, but there's also collective leadership required in industries in Alberta to create the new future for all of the citizens of our province. And that's a passion that um, my business partner, Sean Gibson, and I have in leading Insido is not just to create impact within the organizations, but actually to serve the community that we live in to create a better future by developing stronger leadership within our province. Oh, I appreciate that. that. Is a very powerful why. I love it. Um, you mentioned earlier. I think we were offline chatting about your uh, your your um your sometimes illustrious, sometimes not travel uh, schedule. And you did mention about being in Calgary, uh, high level Toronto, New York. Do you see any differences? Like when you talk about stronger leadership in Alberta, I don't think anybody can say, "Yeah, that sounds great. Let's have more of that." Do you see gaps? Do you see differences? And we can pick on Toronto, we can pick on New York, you fly into New York and you meet with the leadership team, you come back to Calgary, you're like, oh, wow, we're behind a little bit, or we're not. I don't know. And it's not to be negative. I always want to have very real conversations with a positive look to the future, which I'm hearing loud and clear from you. But do you see something that's palatable from a gap perspective when you think about the conversations you have here in Alberta, broadly? Um, I have to think about that a little bit. I think off the top of my head, what's coming up is a strength that I see with leaders in Alberta is building strong relationships with one another mm. and uh, really liking each other and willing to uh, open up a conversation with one another. The gap that I see is being willing to take a bold stand and to not be liked. Um, well, those, think, two, those two, those two immediately conflict with each other, don't they? <laughs> well, well they, they can, <laughs> they do and they don't because the stronger the relationship, the more risks you can take in the relationship. Uh, better because, the rapport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you tell yourself the story. There's actually more to lose and I might hold back because I don't want to lose the relationship. So it's, it's a both end and there's a paradox. Well, there's, there's some, some loss, aversion in, loss aversion in there too, right? <laughs> and that's where some strong leadership needs to come is there's that vulnerability because I really care. I care about the outcome. I care about the relationship. And what would actually strengthen the relationship more is being willing to risk taking a bold stand for your values, for the direction you want to take your organization or support the province and going, and being willing to stand in the criticism of that, that actually makes people want to follow you more and builds greater trust in those around you, even if they're uh, critics in opposition. Because you stand for something you're seen in having courageous authenticity and high integrity even if I don't agree with your position. And that's the gap that I see that actually can be strengthened because of the depth of relationship building that I do see in leaders in this province. The quality of the relationship, the quality of the rapport that allows you to push the boundaries and know that yeah. ultimately you still yes. got each other's back. Even if I don't, I, I do really like that. But we've got such a ability to criticize someone at scale right now, you'd almost like, who would want to step into that role knowing the shitstorm that's going to come at them? <laughs> Speaking of it's where you mentioned government, you made politics. To go into a role like that where everyone has a, has a megaphone, you've got it. There's got to be some willingness or some deep belief in self that this is the right decision, no matter how much you know crap gets flung your way. Because man, we can fling it now more than we've ever had before. <laughs> we, we can do it as like a superpower now to criticize and, and, and attack, which I think 
you know, if I'm going to interpret my own version, leads to people potentially playing a little bit smaller than what we need to actually create change. If I was going to read between the lines of what people are saying. Well, and it's not hmm. about big P politics. In some ways, I think I'm seeing leaders in industry in Alberta relying on government and politicians to be their voice and to actually have their voice even within their own organization, taking a greater stand for what their values are, what they stand for, but also what they won't stand for, what they want to create and what they won't want to create, what they're willing to start saying no to so that they're, they're leading our economy no matter what's happening with government and politics, really focusing on the impact they want to have as an organization mm -hmm. and as an industry, regardless of what's happening with big P politics. Big P politics can get back to the tyranny of the urgent, the problem to solve for today. Uh, and they have different motivations. They have invest. They have election yes. cycles. They have yes. different. They have constituents. Yes. That's a whole, their motivations are are going to mislead. I think for anything, usually beyond a couple a couple of years, in my opinion. <laughs> And Alberta's growth in the economy and stability will come from great organizational leaders creating that an organization in an industry at a time. And the stability that goes beyond um, political cycles, that you've got those enduring organizations with enduring leadership, the slower leadership changes over time that can create that long-term growth and impact for all Albertans. I love how you and I, you're 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 speaking my language, Jess. So we're on the same page here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna vote for you. Um, the ability for business to be the backbone and to drive change on a longer term horizon. I'm so it's why I moved to Alberta and didn't leave. <laughs> I saw some of that here, and I saw a willingness to play at that level where maybe you don't have the layers that you have in Central and Eastern Canada where I grew up, and it's kind of what attracted me to this environment. So to hear you kind of position it the way you did, the role that leadership can play at at at, at a corporate and organizational level to drive, continue to move our province forward and be the powerhouse that we are. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Not that this is a love kumbaya fest at the end of the podcast, but I <laughs> love that way. I love where you took this, Jen, hundred percent. You're, you're making me smile. and I, I could not agree more. <laughs> Back to time span. I'm in it for the long haul. So let's think about what's going to actually create change in the long run. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I could ask you 10, 10 more questions, or I think we could just put a pin in it right now. And I could, I could openly invite you to come back again later because I've got 20 more things I want to talk about, but that was such a fantastic episode. Thank you for having a framework for the conversation. I always joke, my favorite guests, I love them all. I, I fall in love with every guest, but you've thought about your thinking and you presented it in a way that also makes it easy for the audience to go, oh, I could, it, we all grabbed onto something when you laid out your five. I guarantee if you're in a team... You've had, you're probably dealing with one of these right now. <laughs> so I really appreciate the way you laid it out in the framework and uh, really good to get to know you. I'm so glad uh, I shout out to our mutual friend, Jerry Greenall for introducing us, but uh, I love what you're doing and I love the framework you have here. I'm going to, I'm going to listen to this with my leadership team and we're going to have a little chat about it. So thank you very much for that as well. Selfishly. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure, Tyler. And uh, yeah, it's uh, really great to have uh, a conversation where uh we're so aligned and I love that you brought uh, some of the other thought leaders that you admire to the table. I'm going to have to go back and look them up myself. <laughs> a good, po a good podcast sends you down a few rabbit holes. That's, that's what my goal. If someone leaves here curious about, I want to learn a bit more about that. That was a good episode. It did its job. <laughs> Jen, what's the best way for people to get, do you have a preferred, do you like LinkedIn? I see you have a massive follower base on LinkedIn. What's your preferred way for people to get a hold of you? How do they find out more about your company? Give us our little, give us a, give us a little blurb, blurb at the end here. Uh, yeah, my, my preferred social media is LinkedIn and, 
I encourage anyone to reach out to me and connect with me there. Uh, our website is insito.ca or they can reach out to me. I'm also, I'm a real person and they can email me. I'm Jen with Amazing. two N's at insito.ca. Amazing. I love when guests put out their email at the end. Yeah, just, hey, I love to chat with people. Just get, just send me an email. I will, I will get back to you. In the world of like every platform is everyone loves to say that it's dying. I think email still is a place where you can have a solid interaction with somebody. And like you said, a real person on the other on the other. Jen, really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for your time. I know how busy you are. We're chatting about it. So uh, safe travels in your lead up to the end of the year break with all the things you've got on the go. And uh, I um, I will be reaching out to you again in the new year. I think there's more conversations to be had around this ever-changing and dynamic topic. Thank you, Tyler. I really enjoyed our conversation. 